You can get in your fancy yells, you can drink them by the flagon, but the only food for the brave and true comes from the green dragon. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Great Dragon Podcast. We're back. We're back for another episode, Kylie. Isn't it great? I haven't yeah, I haven't sure. spoken into a microphone for a very long time. It's I know, odd. I can tell. Your technique yeah. is awful. Oh, thank you. Absolutely Appreciate awful. that. Not even close, like talking right down the barrel. I feel oh, like I've got it you, pretty You're doing an okay well. job. It's okay now? If, yeah, if, yeah. if I was it's to rate like you this. like I rate kids okay. at work, I would say it's about a six out of ten. Six out of ten. I'll take it. That's good enough. We are talking today about tournaments, are we not, Kylie? Well, we I believe that's what we have written down on the we, sheet of paper. It is. We are discussing how you win tournaments as connoisseurs of winning tournaments, as those people who have won many, many tournaments, and also me. We're going to talk about how you might go about winning them. Now, Kylie has won how many tournaments, would you say, Kylie? Like 50, 100, no. 700, 1,000 now? Now you're just pulling my leg. How um, many tournaments do you think you've won? Over a dozen, probably actually, possibly even over two dozen. I don't know. I don't. Yeah, know. no. I I, think, I've lost track now. I think I've won about a dozen, honestly. So I think you've probably won a, a lot, a lot. Well, there was there was a year where I went to. I think it was like eighteen different tournaments. And I think you won half of and them. And I won so. half of them. Yeah. So that's that's nine straight up. Nine so. right in one year. Nine tournaments. Imagine that. And I placed in all the others. That all I the didn't others. Win. <laughs> so. Okay. I know so what I'm doing. What we can tell from that is Kylie knows how to win at tournaments. So, Kylie, when you get a player's pack, right, what is the first thing that you're looking for in that? Well, points value for one. Okay, that's probably it's, a good start. It's generally start, a yeah. good start. So you, you need know what kind of list you're writing. Yeah. You know, the, the gear's turning. But the most important thing is I look at the scenarios and figure out how I can abuse, if I'm going to use that term like really loosely, how I can abuse the missions and how I can use my army list to make those missions easier and then figure out where I want to go from there. So your first thought is not just how many points, but what the best use of those points are. Yeah. Right. So what this, kind of list you're going to need to actually yeah. win. And I'm, I'm of the opinion that pretty much any army in the game can be built for pretty much any tournament. Some will be better than others, but any army in the game is competitive if you play it a certain way or if you build it a certain way. So I'm never, I'm not saying like, you must take Gondor, you must take Isengard to certain tournaments that are like objective control and stuff. I'm saying, no, you want to look at the missions because every army has something that they can use to like slot in and make them be able to compete in every mission. Right, so there may be a tournament where the scenarios are more geared towards being really mobile. So yeah. you would definitely take in some cavalry or some flying units or something like that. Yeah, or even things like drums or models that get free heroics, such as Aragorn, you can just pop a free one every turn and just keep marching. So just some way of being Just pumped. some way of being yeah. able to, you know, compete in those scenarios and then figure out, you know, how you're going to use that to your advantage. All right, cool. And, th and there might be a scenario, let's say, where your leader has to get some kills if you got a custom scenario thing and not the current ones we have. Yeah, so if that was the case, I'd be looking at the other scenarios around that as well. If that's the only scenario, of course, you just take the biggest, baddest hero you can get and gear the whole army to back it up. But if, say, for instance, you're going to a tournament and there's a scenario that revolves around your hero getting kills, then there's another mission where it matters where your hero ends up at the end of the game, and then there's the final mission where it's all about objective control. I wouldn't go for like the big killer hero straight up, but I would look at a hero that can flex to that role if needed. And I would incorporate those tools into my army list so that I can use them and interchange them as I need it. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs>
It really is as simple as that, though, isn't it? It's just working out what the different scenarios are. It really and, is. Yeah. And, like, for instance, with some armies, like, I'm going to use an example here of um, uh, Rohan with um, the heroes that you can select in Rohan. Now, in a lot of objective kill missions, some people immediately go for Amir, Knight of the Palinor. That's the model I'm going to go for to lead my, my Rohan army because he's the biggest, baddest hero in the army. And sometimes I go, well, hang on a second. Slow, slow down because you might need other heroes that can have more flexible roles in the game. So I would look at other options, like even just basic Amy with a bow and Aeol the Young, because they've got a bit of range firepower there that you can use to keep them safe. And you don't know what your opponent's going to bring to the table either. So having a flexible hero is sometimes better than having the big bruisery hero that can go straight through in these situations. But keeping your options open is always better than locking yourself into one thing. Yeah, for sure. I, I also really like having those heroes with a little bit of ranged fire. It doesn't really matter what it is as long as they can reach out and do something from a distance. So, yeah, that's always useful. Another thing I wanted to ask was, do you ever look at what potential opponents you might be coming up against and what you know they may be running or may not be running? I think it's extraordinarily foolish to walk into a tournament or think about going into a tournament knowing or assuming, I think is a better word here, what your opponent is going to bring or which opponents are going to be there. I've been to so many tournaments now where I've expected a player to bring a certain army and then they've done complete, something completely different because they haven't got that army done in time or they didn't feel like it or they couldn't find the army case for whatever reason. I've heard, heard them all. Yeah. And if you plan on a certain thing being there, nine times out of ten it's not going to be there. Unless, of course, you grudge. Yes, but, if, you, if you do have a yeah. grudge match in the first round, then it's usually a good idea to read up on your opponent. So so Jeremy just yelled out, uh, gr- grudge the uh, the weaker players in the tournament. And <laughs> the chumps. <laughs> the chumps okay, is chumps. his exact word. And you know what? Th- that can be a strategy, but I wouldn't rely on it because uh, I- I've seen the chump players pull out the 6-6-6 uh, the and cause upset wins. Oh, every single tournament. Yeah. Every tournament there will yeah. be that game where... You have an unexpected winner, and you really hope that you're not on the uh, losing end of that one. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing as well I like to look at when I'm I'm building the army list is look at what your obvious weaknesses in your army are. So, for instance, I'm going to use my Mahud army here as an example. Mahud have generally a very low courage. So you generally find that if you hit something like a terror army or an army that can abuse courage like specters, you're going to have a real struggle to actually get in and, you know, either get start to get kills or grab objectives. So what I like to do is have an alternative solution to getting around that issue. So for my Mahud army, I've included blowpipes on every single model, so I'm not obligated to engage on an army that causes terror. And I've also added in a sneaky little ring wraith. Now, the ring wraith isn't there to, you know, pin down enemy heroes, even though you can do that. Again, flexibility is handy. But what he's really there to do is to compel target models that I need to get rid of into my army so that I don't have to take the courage chest to then go in. And that's what I mean by finding bypasses and, you know, workarounds to parts in your list is having flexible models that can do that kind of things. And Ring Race is one of them. Yeah, so you're sort of thinking about all the different potential matchups you could have. Or I guess more specifically, certain play styles that are very, like, overtly powerful that you know that there's a good chance you will come up against. So an all-terror list is a good example of that where you're going to need something that can deal with that, some yeah. way of dealing with that. And it, it doesn't have to be an army-wide thing. It just has to be a small portion of your army can suddenly be able to deal with that, like allying in something, say, like uh, the Watchers of Kana, 
would be a really good option to add, you know, just, you know, like half a dozen into your hood list because they get the plus two to the courage test on the charge. They have a higher base courage to begin with. And then if you add even like an, a warhorn on top of that, suddenly you have a workaround so that if you do hit, say, an army of the dead, you know, wall or a black Numenorean army, you can then, you know, shield off those um, models with like your half trolls or something, protect them and make sure they can get to combat so that when they do, you now have models that can actually put some pressure on your opponent while you're trying to figure out ways of getting your half trolls into position. Right. And then you might get even more specific than that. You might go, okay, what am I going to do against a really big hero, whether on foot or mounted? What am I going to do against, I don't know, a monster? What am I going to do against a monster? Or um, what am I going to do against something that has impact hits? How am I going to play around that? And a lot of this also takes into account terrain, doesn't it? So yeah. maybe something that takes advantage of that as well. Yeah. Terrain's a tricky one. Most and pretty much every tournament I've been to has had terrain some way, shape or form on the board. So you can always form some sort of a, a backup plan using terrain, but I wouldn't rely on it because sometimes objectives might be in the open, in bad positions where you won't get to use terrain to your advantage. But one thing I'd like to like point out when you're like coming up against something when you're thinking of that is sometimes ignoring them is a good option, but sometimes all you might need to you know deal with an enemy hero is just might. And might can be your, your way of counteracting those kind of things. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree with that. I always look at might as it's the most flexible option, isn't it? It, yeah. it does so many different things. It can make so. you move faster. It can allow you to get through enemy heroes. And it can actually help you get the wounds off. Like, simply using your might to wound is incredibly useful. And I've, I play games with, like, a wood elf army that's, you know, walked up to defense, defense eight dwarves and gone, I can't wound anything. And suddenly all my might on, like, Tari or Legolas and... Thranduil is certainly not being used for heroic actions. It's it's literally just being used to wound. And every time I get an option to kill a model with, with a point of might, I use it. And then suddenly that's the extra nine kills that in an otherwise losing game you would be able to get back. Yeah, another really good example of that is, say, you're coming up against elves with orcs and the only thing you really have to win fights with is your captains or, or to do a significant amount of damage and they're lower fight. So what are you going to do? You're going to strike up. You're going to charge in. You're going to strike up and you're going to make sure you get those two kills. Mm, and you can even go take it one step further. And this is one thing I like to tell new players when they're designing lists is how you're going to take your advantages further. So when you say playing an, an army, like you said, uh, or just an orc spam against wood elves, how are you going to make each point of might the most effective point of might you can get out of? So the strike is really useful. But if you team it up with another hero who can then call her at combat, you can now get two her combats with a striked up hero for the price of one. And that extends the lead you can get with, you know, the resources you have at your disposal. Absolutely. So, yeah. So one thing that I know that you talk about a lot when talking about how to design lists is how the heroes are actually going to link up with each other. Yeah, that's that's something I've been trying to like get into players a lot is one thing I found with, especially with the, the way warbands are configured, um, in the current, you know, like state of the game is how is each section of your army going to perform individually and how are they going to link together to perform as a unit? I think the best example of this are Gondor armies because they have so many cheap little heroes that you can just kind of slot in. But on top of that, because they have a lot of cheap little heroes, most people go for the max warbands. But sometimes just, you know, having a small warband of like three or four models can be really, really useful to, you know, stick on the end of a flank or have an objective running. And then similarly, because you have models like Baragond who can then take a horse really cheaply, you can have a small little warband of, you know, three guys on horse and use them to, you know, outflank and get objectives. And because of that, 
you can then design the rest of your list to link in with those options. So you can use the small warband to, you know, almost add an extra half warband for shield wall formation, or you can use use them as outflankers, you can use them as just reserve troops for your army. And that's what I'm saying by like linking up your heroes is think about how each warband correlates to the other. And that can be really, really important sometimes, especially with armies like that have lots of weapon options and lots of unit options. In retrospect, we're really talking a lot more about list building now, aren't we? We've sort of at, gone... At, at the moment, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. What, what else is there about tournaments that we can sort of work our way into before we actually get there on the day? What, what are the things that you sort of think about beforehand? The other thing I like to look at is the soft scores. So things like sportsmanship, painting, and things like theme generally come under these kind of like headings. So look at the player's pack. Figure out how many points you can get from the different categories that they have listed. For instance, Minimize, which is one of Davis tournaments, has a lot of emphasis on theme. So if you actually look look at the theme and what you can get for it, there are heaps of points that you can get simply by, you know, theming your army against another opponent or grudging someone and doing like small things like, you know, dressing up and stuff when you come to the tournament. Those little bits and pieces and those points do add up and they add up quickly. And what you might think is only one or two points, if you get all of them and you're up against an opponent who only gets half of them, you can suddenly pick up a game lead or half a game lead against someone in a tournament. And when you go to some tournaments and you see the rankings at the end of the game, and like there are three or four points between first and second, those points matter. So always look at picking up the extra bits and pieces from soft scores. So of course, we can only really talk about the tournaments we have over here. We can't really say internationally whether it's going to be exactly the same thing, but I think they are. I think they're very similar. I think they're very similar yeah. in, in how you go about you know, approaching a tournament and figuring out how you're going to win it. Yeah. Okay. So is there anything else, Kylie, that you would talk about for a tournament? Well, we've talked a lot about what you do before a tournament. We haven't talked a lot about what you do when you get to the tournament. Right. Yes. One thing I've learned from my many years of experience is don't antagonize your opponents. That is like the big no-no. Don't, don't just walk up to someone and start picking fights with them. Don't, don't go up to someone and start saying, your opinion is invalid. You should be doing this with your army. Because that is a, the best way to get people, you know, lining up to take your number for one and try to beat you in the game. But in addition, what people don't realize is that when you antagonize a lot of people, particularly groups of friends, you generally find that those friends seem to linger over to your tables. And occasionally, they'll slip in some advice to your opponent, even though they're not supposed to. A TO might hit them with a, a sports hit or something or take points away from them. But the fact of the matter is that advice is still landed and has still gotten to the ear of your opponent. So being nice is surprisingly a good way to go about, you know, approaching a tournament situation. You're suggesting that nice guys do not finish last? No, in fact, nice guys generally come first. Interesting. You I will... might have to change up my tactics then. <laughs> yes, I strongly recommend that you do. This doesn't explain why Jeremy wins so many tournaments, though, does it? No, no, it doesn't, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, I guess he is the exception that proves the rule. Indeed. Okay, so you've written your list, you've arrived at the tournament, you've handed out everyone bribes and pats on the back, and now uh, you started again. Gummy Worms and Freddo Fobbs are very good at doing there this. There you go. That's, that's Kylie's tips for bribery. And now you're, you're getting stuck into a game. What do you do? What do you need to do there? The first thing is look at what the mission and or slash scenario uh, you're playing is and look at what your opponent's got. Part of 
being able to win tournaments is to recognize your opponent's win conditions. Now, I'm not talking about you need to have X amount of models around an objective or the person with more models around their objective wins. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about with win conditions is looking at what in your opponent's army is going to win them the game. For instance, it might be the critical hero in the army list, such as Imrahil in a Glamroth army. Generally just provides them such a big boost with that banner reroll that whilst he's alive, they're always within a chance. So look at what in your opponent's army is is the threat. What is going to win this particular scenario and what else you can either ignore, mitigate, or have to take down. Right, right. So the key targets is yeah. what you're saying. Here. Yeah. yeah. This is where like the flexibility in your army comes into play as well. Um, for instance, I, used to, I had a pretty successful tournament army of Dwarf Rangers. And one of the things I had with the Dwarf Ranger army was they were actually pretty flimsy in combat. So what I did was added an Iron Guard on top of it. Simply because the Iron Guard add extra throwing weapons to the list, but they also provide a defense six to attack line that can be useful at times. Yeah, that attack, extra attack makes yeah. a significant so difference. So it, it adds as a foil to the regular rages, but also makes their strengths uh, improve and become more effective, which is what you want from a list. Yeah. But in particular, my heroes were really bulky defense eight heroes that were hard to bring down. So what this means is I had three different tools that I could use to take down enemy models. So, for instance, when I went up against Jeremy in one of my games, he had a Black Guard army, and I recognized in a grab-the-middle scenario, the Black Guard were the things that ne I needed to remove from the table before I had any chance of winning the game. So I made it my priority that all my throwing weapons, all my shooting, went into the Black Guard, even though killing the Orcs would be more effective and I'd kill more. But the thing is, once combat hit, it was the Black Guard that were going to keep Jeremy in the game. And I made sure that my Iron Guard got into them because the fighting would be slightly in their favor. And I made sure that the numbers were whittled down enough from his number, like 12, down to about 5. So then they became manageable once combat hit. And it's interesting because this is the kind of thing you see a lot in like really high level play. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. That's the kind of thing you're thinking about. It's also a business term, which I've just finished studying. So, I, you know, you, you learn about that sort of thing there. Everybody does this. But usually, for most people, it's unconscious. It's subconscious. They're not thinking about, okay, this is my guy that's going to do this, and that's my guy that's going to do that. They just sort of have a general idea of it. When you're really high level, and when you're really thinking about not just how to win a game, but the specifics of that, the really detailed specifics... That's when you start in considering all of the different threats, opportunities, strengths, weaknesses between the two armies, between your army and theirs. Yeah, and there are some times when the matchup against you and your opponent is really poor. Like, you might be an old goblin town horde against Thorin's company. At, which, at that point, you then switch to damage control mode. So it's like, how many points can I limit my opponent from achieving? whilst achieving myself and then you switch to that you change your strategy and that is a good thing to do because it means that you can still get points in a scenario that you would otherwise not been able to get if you played your standard you know strategy and the way you're going to approach a game and that's something you're just not going to do in a friendly game because why would you why would you you're just not going to yeah. necessarily have that much fun outside of a tournament setting but inside a tournament to achieve at your best level Sometimes you need to play in that defensive mode that is going to get you as many points as you can yeah. and limit your opponent. I think, and that's that's the lesson that I want to give here. Always go for as much points as you can and try and conserve the points you can. There are times when you, even when you're playing that, you know, Thorin's company against Mass Goblin Hound in the objective scenario, th there can be windows of opportunity where you go, hang on a second, if I get this throwing weapon kill here, that means I can charge the scribe. 
that means that the numbers are going to be reduced. That means I can get to the shaman. And then suddenly you have an opportunity where you can blow the game wide open. Good players will take that opportunity whilst also securing their position at the same time. And that's what turns a good player into a great player is when they're able to take two separate things that could possibly win them the game or give them an opportunity to win the game and will do both simultaneously. And that's the thing that me and Jeremy have been doing a lot recently is you don't just have plan A and then when that fails, go to plan B. You have plan A, B, C, D, E, and F and you do them all at the same time so that when fails, you, you can immediately transition into the next one or have one already in the works. And that's what, that's what I'm talking about here when you have bad matchups is still go for the win, but conservatively go for the win and wait for the opportune moment because sometimes your opponent might surprise you with a silly move. So another plan that you might end up making, having done all of that, is what opponents you're going to be playing next throughout the tournament. Now, you said you don't specifically look at before the tournament what you think a, an opponent might be bringing or someone whose game style you know, but they might be taking a different army. But once you're there, once you've seen their army because they've actually played with it on the table and you have a good idea of people who have been winning in the tournament that you might be matched up against, what do you do then, Kylie? This is where a, a lot of if, buts, and maybes come into play. And the important thing here is if you're ever going to start theorizing about what your opponents have, what scenario you could pull and what table you're playing on, don't think too hard on it. Because the moment you start overanalyzing it, a curveball gets thrown your way and the plan that you've come up with completely breaks down. If you're thinking, if you're going into a tournament and you know that player like, like John, Juliet, and you know, some other random guy from a place you don't know is at the top, is in the top four with you, think of general ideas of how you can approach each game individually. The other thing as well is you don't know the scores directly all the time. So take everything that you do at this part of the game with a grain of salt until the TO reads out what table you're on and who you're playing against with the mission. Don't go too in depth because you'll make yourself go silly. The other thing I wanted to say about that is don't try and submarine. I've met a lot of players that consistently say submarining is the best way to win a tournament. So what we mean by that is you don't do too well in the first round. You get matched up against weaker opponents and then you get a lot of points off of them and boost your way up to the top. Yeah. I've been playing tournaments for a pretty long time now. And one thing I've noticed is if you play hard from game one all the way through to game six, chances are nobody's going to have a score higher than you. And that's the thing I want to specifically get to. Because when you're in a big pool of players, particularly once you're starting to get more than 24, this starts to make a big difference. Simply winning all your games is more important than you know tanking one game and then making up the rest of them. Because in some situations, who wins the game can win, be the tiebreaker. In some situations, you get bonus points for beating your opponent simply by getting more victory points or whatever. And those things matter. I have seen submarine players swear by it. And I've seen countless times again where once you look at the score breakdown, it's not actually the submarining that got them back up to the top. Yeah, I don't think there are any actual submarine players. I, I think it's just a thing that happens rather than something anyone's really uh, trying to do. I think you do say that, and I think that's the, what everyone is going to say, but oh, I don't know. I've seen some pretty, mm. pretty, you know, convincing correlations between the way people play at the start of a tournament to how people play at the end of the tournament, particularly once game two happens. Well, fair um, enough, fair enough. And plus the other thing as well is if you try and submarine and you tank the first game, you might tank the second game as well. Yeah, for sure. And that it just blows out your, your tournament. Yeah. 
And that's that usually too. Two losses is pretty yeah. difficult to come back from. Yeah. And that's another thing as well. Don't just because you lost one game, don't immediately rule yourself out of a tournament. Even if you didn't pick up any points at yeah. all, because if you've done really well up to that point yeah. and other players might have more wins than you, but they may not be as strong. You're still definitely in with the chance. And this is where soft scores like sportsmanship and painting come into it in, into account because it can give you that game or half game lead that, you know, other players around you might not have. And that can be very, very powerful. I've seen time and time again, players with beautifully painted armies pip out perceived stronger players simply because, you know, they had a half game lean because they had a better paint job done and they filled in all the extra, you know, criteria with soft scores and particularly sportsmanship I've seen countless times cost people tournaments and in fact it's cost me tournaments too simply because you know there was a time in my life when i was a teenager and i was an arrogant prat yeah <laughs> i think we've all been there i'm sure i've lost tournaments to that too um okay so you've done it all you've got to the end you've won you are the winner of the tournament how do you celebrate kylie what do you do then how do you celebrate Hmm. Well, I used to be the kind of person that used to go around and parading my my wins and wins and and, oh and, boy, and, did and, you. and and show off how good I was. That's not the best way to do things because <laughs> remember how I said don't antagonize people. People remember. Yeah. Surprisingly, yep, they sure do. So when you rock up to the next tournament, people are already going to be gunning for you. And I think the what, what's the uh, saying that goes? It's uh, be humble in victory and gracious in defeat. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is a very good motto. Very good saying, yeah. Personally, for me, a nice cold beer usually does it. <laughs> uh, luckily, a place where we often have tournaments is licensed, so I've had a beer a couple of times after a good tournament, and you've nothing, also had nothing goes down better. <laughs> you've also had a beer a couple of times before the tournament yeah, and been well, completely wrecked. Now that's the an day entirely before. different story. <laughs> Actually, that is a good piece of advice. Don't get uh, too drunk the night before a tournament. Yeah, yeah. And make sure you get some sleep in the before a tournament. Don't do mm. the 2 a.m. painting trip. Don't so, paint all night beforehand. It's yeah. It doesn't work. Plan it out, yeah. please. <laughs> I can't stress that enough. Like Getting a good night's sleep before the tournament is vital and a good breakfast because it sets you up for the day. It does actually give you a surprisingly big edge that most people don't realize. Oh, for sure. All right, so I think that's that on tournaments. Thanks for joining us, guys. And if you've won a tournament or if you've done well in a tournament, let us know how how you did it, what your success story is. Thanks for joining us. And remember, Traps Win Games. Thank you for listening to the Green Dragon Podcast. Please be advised that the Green Dragon Podcast is not suitable for children, the elderly, pregnant women, those with a history of heart conditions, or anyone expecting to receive worthwhile advice. You can contact us on thegreendragonpodcasts at gmail.com. Yes, it has an S at the end. Or our Facebook page, The Green Dragon Podcast. We do not claim ownership of any works based on J.R.R. Tolkien, New Line Cinema, Warner Brothers, or Games Workshop. This podcast is purely for entertainment. The thoughts, as rare as they are, are solely that of our hosts and guests. Farewell, listener, until we meet again.